Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. The English country house has been on the brink of ruination since at least the start of World War I, or perhaps the first chug of the Industrial Revolution, or was it the end of serfdom? Propping up this dying, decadent institution has been a favored pastime of preservationists, architecture buffs, and earls for about as long as the institution has been around. In his new book, Noble Ambitions, historian Adrian Tinniswood peels back the wallpaper to show how these ancestral piles survived both World War II and the sunset of the British Empire, and in some ways are more relevant than they ever were. Thank you for talking to me, Adrian. I'm so excited to talk about country houses. Me too. I can't talk about country houses enough, believe me. Perfect. Well, I know your book focuses on the country house after World War II. But for Uh those of us who are not British and may not have peered into many country houses beyond Downton Abbey, say, who built these things? When did they build them? How big are they? Like, Give us English Country House 101, please. Wow, you're starting with the big questions here, Stephanie, aren't you? I mean, who built them? All kinds of people built them. When were they built? All the time. How big were they? Enormous. So, I mean, there there are something, nobody can agree. There are something like 8,000 country houses in the United Kingdom. And they range from something that's maybe not much bigger than a farmhouse, you know, just a, a small manor house, the kind of, you know, the, the really pretty moated half-timbered manor house that, that was built maybe in the late 15th century, 16th century, right up to the Chatsworths and the Blenheims, which are acres and acres of house. They're monsters. And they're built for dukes. You know, they're built for the people right at the top of the social scale. And then most houses, of course, are in between. They're not little manor houses. They're not vast, um, uh, they're not vast palaces, but they're, they're maybe 50 room, 60 room, 70 room houses. You know, big by my standards. I live in a the house I'm in at the moment has got five rooms in it. Um, you know, so like 50 rooms is a lot. But in, in the sort of general scale of things, that's kind of medium sized country house. The, the crucial thing, I think, is that way back, they were attached to a big agricultural estate. They were at the centre of a rural community, the centre of an estate. So they were the the headquarters, if you like, the administrative headquarters of of an estate, which could be hundreds of acres, it could be thousands of acres. It varied a lot. So is it kind of an outgrowth of the feudal system where you'd have like a lord and various tenants of the lord's estate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you go back far enough, that's exactly what it was. but that's way back. I mean, you're talking about the early Middle Ages there. By the time of, by the time that Queen Elizabeth I was on the throne in the 16th century, that kind of feudal relationship had long broken down. And it had been replaced by one where, um, certainly the people on the estate might be tenants. You know, they, they might, um, in fact, they, they almost certainly would be tenants. They would, they, the houses belonged to the owner of the big, the big house, if you like. But, they were they were free you know they're free to come and go a lot of them worked for for the owner and they had the kind of obligations that an employee would have you know those kind of master servant relationships but that was all changing quite radically by the early 20th century i mean you know by the time we get to 1900 the the uh, there have been huge agricultural depressions in britain 
partly caused by cheap imports of wheat from America, in fact, and by the advent of the railways, which means that, you know, that, that supplies could get around. Now, the agricultural depressions meant that rents went down. They meant that an agricultural estate wasn't that important anymore. And you start to see the big estates being sold off. And, you know, and tenants being invited to buy their own homes if they could, or, or being, you know, the, the ownership being shifted to, to others, to speculators. So the country house is in, in a state of flux by the early 20th century. Right. And then it keeps sort of being in flux over the course of the 20th century, <laughs> as I know from Downton Abbey. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> so, like, what was the difference between the country house after World War II versus World War one. In other words, why did you choose to track the country house in your book in so specific a period? Why not, you know, start after World War One? What was it about this particular era? Well, um, partly it's it's a matter of practicalities. A few years ago, I wrote a book called The Long Weekend, which was about the country house between the wars. So this new book, Noble Ambitions, is a, a sequel, if you like. It, when I wrote The Long Weekend, I was looking at that period, 1918 to 1939, and I was thinking that was the heyday. That was the, the last golden age of the great stately homes of England, that after the, after the Second War, it all kind of crashed and burned. And then I started to look and started to think about it, and I thought, no, actually, I got that wrong. It wasn't that straightforward. Um, you've, got, you've got country houses being sold off after the Second War, lots of houses. You've got country houses being demolished after the Second War. Lots. At one point in 1955, it's reckoned that a stately home a week was being demolished. Hundreds of them. But most stately homes weren't demolished. The ones that were sold, sure, they were bought. You have a new kind of class of, of, of country house owner, somebody who's not got the links to the community, if you like. There's not, you know, there's not a farmer that's not interested in having a vast agricultural estate, but wants a nice house to go for the weekend often. Most of these people that bought these houses after the Second War, they weren't homes, they weren't permanent homes. They were places to spend a Saturday to Monday. They were places to, to retreat to, sanctuaries, if you like. And they lived in them for maybe 10 years or so, and then the stock market crashed and they sold or something like that, or they moved on. You know, so you don't have the continuity after the Second World that you had before that. Where did the idea that the country house was destroyed after World War II come from? Because you are an expert on the country house. You wrote a book about it. How could even someone like you sort of come out and be like, ah, oh, yes, it's all gone, and then realize it was such a wrongheaded idea? Well, there's a powerful narrative there, I think, and that runs right through the 20th century. So conservationists have naturally played up the threat to the country house, and the country house gets tied in to, to England. It's not even Britain, it's actually to England, even though country, there are lots of country houses in Wales and Ireland and Scotland. But it's that idea of Englishness and stability and tradition, and they were under threat. Now, the people that wanted to save country houses, and indeed the people that lived in country houses, they talked up that threat. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, uh, it's a way of gaining sympathy. It's a way of gaining state aid for, um, for country houses. And there's always been a battle, certainly in the mid-20th century onwards, there's been a battle between conservationists who, who argued that stately homeowners deserve tax breaks. They deserve state assistance. And the kind of diehard socialists in British governments who have said, you know, 
we can think of better uses for our money than giving it to rich people who live in big houses. So there's always been that tension. And as part of that argument, I think, there's a, a an idea that grew up in the 20s and 30s and got much more powerful in the 40s and 50s, that the best people to look after a country house were the people who owned it. That rather than a house going to the British National Trust or going to the state, it was better if the house was looked after by the family who had lived in it for centuries. Now, you can argue both ways on that. I, I know I, I, can, I can get the emotional pull of that. And I certainly get the emotional pull by owners. You know, there's a, uh, the Duke of Devonshire, when Chatsworth was under threat in 1950, he said, there's nowhere we can ever live here again. He was wrong. In fact, they do live there. But he said, there's nowhere we can live in Chatsworth. But I don't want to be the one to let it go. And that pressure to hang on to something that your forefathers, that, that, that 10, 20 generations have looked after, that idea that you don't want to be the one to let it go is really powerful, I think. But at the same time, the notion that the best people to look after a country house is the family that have lived there forever is a notion that plays into the hands of the people that have lived there forever. <laughs> you know, it's uh, who benefits from uh, that notion being prevalent, being accepted. It's the families that have lived in, in the house. And, uh, and, and that's always been a sort of, you know, a knife edge, if you like, a tightrope for people to walk along. I'm so interested in how the country house became the symbol of England, as you said, and got tied up with Britishness. And I can't help but feel like it has to do with this incredible piece of propaganda that you write about, <laughs> this the exhibition, The Destruction of the Country House, which came out after World War II. Can you talk about that show? Yeah, it's, it's a really important exhibition that was put on at the Victorian Albert Museum in 1974. And it marks a kind of watershed in, in our, our views of country houses. Because it's weird to think about it today, but when, when all these demolitions were taking place, when houses were being pulled down or, or uh, remodeled or, you know, or partly pulled down, um, some were sold off to American, in fact. I mean, there, there, are whole, there are whole country houses that were shipped out to the States. Um, Agecroft Hall, lovely timber-framed manor house in Lancashire. You can still see Agecroft Hall today, but you won't see it in Lancashire in, in Britain. You'll see it on the banks of the James River in Richmond because it was... It was dismantled and it was put back up over there. It's still there today. Um, up until that time, although demolitions were, were happening, nobody realised how bad things were. Very few people, anyway. If a country house was demolished, people thought, well, you know, what, what are you going to do with it? You know, how, you can't keep them all if there's no use for them. Even conservationists were, were saying, well, you know, you, that, that's the way it goes. Society is changing. We're not a kind of a, a, a you know, we're a more democratic age. And rich people, aristocrats, uh, and their stately homes belong to the past. But nobody quite realised what the scale of the destruction was. And in 1974, um, uh, some conservationists and museum specialists, curators, got together and put together this amazing exhibition, which just lifted the lid on the threat to the country house. Now, paradoxically, by the time they lifted that lid, the threat to the country house was actually retreating a little bit. It wasn't as bad as it had been because we had uh, a listing process that was kind of get, gaining momentum in the 1950s and 60s. So the historic houses that were listed by the state, that were scheduled by the state, could not be demolished. 
they had to be preserved. And that had, that had sort of by and large saved most of the big country houses by the late 60s. But even so, in, the, in 1974, people saw there was a fantastic part of this exhibition called the, the, the Hall of Lost Houses, I think. And all it was, was photographs of country houses that had been demolished in the last hundred years. Hundreds of them. And in the exhibition room, John Harris, the, the pioneering architectural historian, John Harris's voice just intoned this roll call of the lost. And Roy Strong, the curator of the um, exhibition, he said he used to go into that room and he would find people crying. He would find people just weeping of what had gone. So it was an enormously powerful um, exhibition. And it led to a growth of interest in the country house, I think. Um, you know, you've got books like Mark Girouard's Life in the English Country House, which came out in, what, 1978, which was a bestseller. Now, books about country houses hadn't been bestsellers. That wasn't what happened. They're, you know, they're, 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 they're scholarly monographs. They're not, they're not for everybody. And suddenly they were. Um, Granada TV made Brideshead Revisited. You know, they, they dramatised Evelyn Waugh's classic novel of loss and country house loss. Um, that one came out in 1980, I think. And suddenly everybody wants to talk about country houses. You can track that back to that single exhibition. Wow. I mean, did your average Brit really care about country houses before then? You know, I appreciate old architecture and I love old houses for that. But I can understand being like a working class Brit and seeing, you know, this opulence on display and also being like, who cares? Thank God I don't have to work as a maidservant for Lord so-and-so anymore. Yeah. Like, why do people care so much about these piles of bricks? Well, that, that kind of attitude you've described, that, that's, that was prevalent as well. Uh, um, and, and then there was a lot of doublethink. I, mean, I, I used to have a, 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 an old Marxist friend. He was a real died of a socialist firebrand. But he used to love going around country houses. And when I used to tax him with this, he said, I, I go to exult in their downfall, <laughs> which, was, which was a lie. <laughs> of course it was. And I mean, I, I, speaking personally, I have the same kind of tensions. I mean, my, my politics are left-leaning. And yet I spent my life enjoying the homes of the rich, if you like, you know, and there is a tension there and it's an unresolved tension. I think one of the things that helped people to appreciate country houses was the very fact that they were going, they were disappearing and that, you know, that, that made it more poignant. I, I go to see these old places before they're lost, someone says. And you've got organisations like the British National Trust who start off in 1895, and basically they're looking after open spaces. But from the 1930s onwards, as the crisis of the country house grows, they start to take on country houses. And their membership, it's a membership organisation, their membership grows enormously from a few thousand in the early 20th century to, I think it's something like five million today. It is one of the biggest membership organisations in Britain. And... There's that sense of, of reaching out for beauty, of going to see something that's precious and something that's under threat. The fact that it's under threat really adds an edge to it, I think. But that said, you're right. There, are, there were plenty of people who thought, why, why should I support this? You know, what, what, why my, my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather were in service here. Now, you can look on that through rose-coloured spectacles and, and, you know, and imagine a Downton Abbey, if you like, where, where, where servants and, and, and family were all kind of quite pally together and one big family. I mean, that's rare. 
they weren't one big family. There was usually a social apartheid. You know, there were two... Com somebody said, um, Robert Carl, the Victorian architect, said um, the country house consists of two families, two communities. And it did. There was a green baize door and it separated below stairs from above stairs. And the two did not mix. I mean, you had servants in... You had servants in British country houses that never saw the family, ever, because they were kept down in the basement. They were kept in the servants' wing. You know, so you've got that split very definitely between privilege, you know, between master and servant, if you like. Right. And I think it does become idealized in certain forms if we have Brideshead Revisited, Howard's End, Downton, of course, all these things. I mean, there is sort of an in-between between destroying it and giving, you know, the Lord so-and-so's millions of pounds of tax breaks or letting them, you know, fund their own reconstruction or restoration of the house, which is alternative uses for it, which did happen, like have a long history, you know, of being used during war and after war. Absolutely. And um, and it continues to this day. I mean, you know, you, the, the whole phenomenon of country house hotel is, is a part of that. Um, after the first war, somebody said that the English public school system, by which, of course, we meant private school system, um, had saved the country house because so many prep schools and boarding schools moved into country houses that were up for sale. You've got a, 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 an idealization of the country house, certainly. Um, and you've got different ways of looking at the country house, of, of different reasons for valuing it, I think. One thing is that state, always state aid for the country house, tax breaks for the country house, go along with public benefit. If if Lord Tinniswood is going to get a, a hefty grant to put a new roof on Tinniswood Mansions, then he's going to have to open the place to the public. Mm -hmm. That's the deal, so that the public get a benefit. The, pub, you know, the, the public taxes are paying for this, while the public gets some kind of reward for it. That's always been part of the equation since the 1930s and 1940s. You, you've also got this sense that, that I think in the 1970s and 80s, there's a growing sense that people wanted to know how people lived in the past. I mean, I started work at a country house in Derbyshire, in the English Midlands, in the late 70s. And there, it was a beauty, it is a beautiful house, Sudbury Hall. Let me put a plug for Sudbury Hall, which is one of the most beautiful houses in the world. But although it's one of the most beautiful houses in the world, people were increasingly, when I was there in the late 70s, early 80s, they were coming along, visit, it was open to the public, it was National Trust House. And they were saying, where are the kitchens? Where did the servants live? That people wanting more and more to get an idea of the social structures that underpin these places. And that's quite powerful, I think. And it's quite powerful today. It's almost as if it's gone... I mean, I've been a, a, an advocate for this approach to the country house for, for decades. But sometimes I wonder if it's gone too far. And we forget that the main reason for preserving country houses is that they are so damn beautiful. That's why we want them. That's why we keep them. That's why we admire them. Because they are stunningly lovely things. And some of them aren't, of course. Well, knock those down. I don't care. You know, <laughs> who wants an ugly country house? <laughs> no, that's an exaggeration. But, but their, their, their beauty, their surroundings, their landscape park, their plasterwork, their, their paintings, their furnishings, they are why we treasure them. You know, they're not just examples of a, of a, of a bygone social class system. They are works of art. And they're peculiarly British works of art as well, I think. I mean, I don't know 
that much about European country houses, to be honest. But what I do know suggests that that sense of the country house that was once at the heart of a community, that was once um, the the uh, source of employment for hundreds of people and for craftsmen and artists, that's really important. That's really rare. Well, what do you think of the, the reckoning that the country house and that the National Trust specifically began doing last year with their interim report about the connections that these houses had to various facets of the colonial or slave owning past? I remember going to country houses when I, I lived in England for a brief time and my mom dragged me to see all the pretty houses. And I just remember that. I just remember the pretty house part. And the same, yeah. you know, is largely true in places like Amsterdam, where you go to these beautiful, large townhouses, and none of sure. them mention how they made their money. None of them mention, you know, what connections, how many slaves those family owned. I, I think I think what's happening is great. It has polarized British society, this question. I mean, it really has. There are people on the right who are very angry that that we're questioning everything rather than accepting these these beautiful things. There are people on the left who are, who are very angry because we're covering up the past. Um, my take on it, if, if it's worth anything, my take on it is that it's a great way to engender debate. I mean, I, one, a country, I, I live some of the time, I live near Bath in Somerset in the west of England. And my local National Trust House is a place called Deerham Park which was built in 1700 by um, a fellow called William Blathwaite. Now, two of William Blathwaite's most treasured possessions, they're still in the house, are two tour shares. They're two platforms, and they are um, painted plaster black slaves. They're, ch they're in chains, these things. Now, one side says, they're beautiful, leave them as they are. The other side says, Get rid of them. These things shouldn't be on display. What I say is, why are they there? Talk about it. Talk to me. What did William Blathwaite think when he was having... The, and what, what, what do people think today when they see those objects in Deer? Let's talk about it. You know, if, if, it, if it makes you cross, if it makes you angry, that's great. Let's talk about your anger. Let's work through. Let's see what these objects mean and talk about what they mean. But don't stick them in a basement and pretend they're not there. That's dishonest. Right. I think that's kind of the same dishonesty that's at play when you pretend like the relationship is always rosy between upstairs and below stairs, right? Yeah. I think what's so yeah. interesting about the country house is that there is always this tension between beauty and darkness, between rich and poor, between preservation and destruction. It's not like we can pretend they're not there. There's still thousands of them, right? <laughs> yeah, I think but you put it perfectly, I think. And that tension, of course, is, is part of the ongoing excitement about the country house, that uncertainty. Because, you know, some days I'll go to a country house and I'll get angry. Other days I, I go weak at the knees at the beauty of the thing. You know, it's, it's, you know, people aren't that consistent. I'm not that consistent anyway. And that tension is what, keeps me thinking about country houses, keeps me enjoying them and questioning them and challenging why they're there and thanking God that they are there. We can do all of those things. They're focuses for, for a whole set of contradictory and ambivalent emotions sometimes, I think. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. 
We have links in the show notes to Adrian Tenniswood's new book, Noble Ambitions. And if you're hungry for more history of the English country house, you can check out his first book, which is about the English country house after the other world war. We also have a link to an essay that Sam Knight wrote for The New Yorker a couple weeks ago, which is actually about just that report from the National Trust that Adrian and I spoke about at the end of the interview. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.